0: Good afternoon, great to see you here at the EU public meeting. As Richard said, my name's Rowan Kemp, I work here with the EU. It's my great privilege to work as a senior staff worker here with the EU. Really glad you could come and join us today, especially if you're visiting with us for the first or second time, or maybe your third time, fourth time. We're just really glad that you could come along and just spend this bit of time turning your mind, your God-given mind to the God-given Word of God, the Christian Scriptures, See what God might have to say to us today. And uh, you can see that I've entitled this reflection on God's Word, The Incomplete Gospel of Jesus. And that's meant to, you know, I'm not very creative, it's meant to try to get you to be a little bit quizzical. If it's just done even that a little bit, I'll be happy. So that's good. so. let's just pretend. You go, oh, that's not, that's sort of interesting, and we'll see how we go. I'll start with this question though. What does Christianity, as a world faith, offer the globe? What does Christianity, let's be more pointy what does the Gospel of Jesus offer the globe? Just so happens at this particular point in time here in Sydney, we've got the Jesus All About Life campaign, which is trying to get Jesus onto the city's agenda via the media. So let's just do a quick straw poll. Let's see if they're being very effective. Uh, who's seen a Jesus All About Life ad on the idiot box on the TV? Okay, that's obviously there's more TV watches on Thursday at the EU public meeting than any other time of the week. So maybe you're all art students or maybe you just watch TV a lot, I don't know. Okay, now that I've managed to offend most of you, um, who's seen a Jesus All About Life, some sort of ad or something on either internet or Twitter? Okay, who's seen it on Facebook, like in terms of a profile pic? That seems to be quite effective. They stole that from us, you know. That was Ancon. We did that. No, I don't know if they stole it from us, but it is a good idea. So let's just, who, who has not seen anything about Jesus all about life? Put your hand up. Just be up. One. Excellent. Well, out of this, I mean, very thorough. I'm no statistician, but I'm sure this is a very thorough way to do statistical analysis. Obviously they're doing pretty well. In terms of getting Jesus onto our agenda in this city, because just about everyone in the room has seen something. What what is the marketing, the media campaign telling you about Jesus? If you had to answer that question, what does Jesus offer the globe from those ads, what would you what answer would you give? Answers? Life? Anything else? doesn't give a lot of content, and you can't ask too much of a media campaign. But I just want to suggest to you, this is a really important question to get right. What does Jesus, what does the gospel of Jesus offer the globe? I'll tell you why, because I think we can very easily undersell Jesus or over-promise Jesus. Very much we can actually... Um, pedestrianise Jesus, turn Jesus into a bit of a ho-hum religious figure such that he doesn't actually, it's not actually at all clear why you should take particular notice of him. Is he just a sort of a religious accessory that you should add to your life to make it better, to value add to your existence? So I mean, sometimes we can pedestrianise Jesus, we can undersell, I think, what Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, actually promises on the flip side, of course, we can over-promise what Jesus can deliver. We can turn Jesus into some sort of uber-superhero Jesus who will fly into your life and fulfil all of your needs. Actually, no, more than all your needs. He'll fill all of your desires. Not necessarily transform your desires. He'll fulfil them. You want to be liked? He'll like you. He loves you. What's more? You will be part of a community that will just love you so much. You feel a need for meaning, for success. Jesus wants to give that to you. You want security? Jesus will give that to you. Not just in the age to come, but right now in the present age. There's a way in which, if we're not careful, we can actually overpromise Jesus. So it's about trying to get Jesus right, right? Because I'll tell you the problem with underselling and overpromising Jesus. The promise with pedestrianizing him and turning him into some uber superhero. All those Jesuses are fake. They are not real. There is a real Jesus. Not a real idea, not a real Christian picture. Of I'm talking about a real Jesus. Like a real dude. A guy who is being raised from the dead by his heavenly father, who is now seated at the right hand of his father in glory in heaven who has been made Lord and Christ over the whole globe. What does this Jesus, what does the announcement about this Jesus actually offer the globe? We want to get Jesus right. Well, today we're going to look at that question from this next section of the book of Acts. Now, if you've been with us at EU public meetings on and off during the year we've we've been sort of marching our way through the book of Acts, we come to the final three weeks of the year and so we're going to finish off the book of Acts. Now, if you know anything about the book of Acts of the Apostles in the Bible, it's 28 chapters long. And um, by my reckoning, we're up to the end of chapter 18. So I'm just thinking it's taken us all year to get to chapter 18. Okay, today we'll do 18 and the first little couple of verses, chapter 19. That leaves us with two weeks to do about 10 chapters. Something's gone wrong here, Rowan. Anyway, thats it'll just be interesting the next two weeks, exactly how we do this. And I'm not quite sure yet how we're going to do it myself. You might want to... Hold on for the ride. Anyway, today, I did have this grand plan that today we would do right through the end of chapter 20. That at least would get us some way. Because I worked on the text and had great time trying to understand God's word. And I realised there's so much great stuff. And then I realised, oh, I can't do all that. And we'll dump chapter 20. We'll do that later. And we'll just do sort of 18 and 19. And there were two sort of main things. No worries. Blah, blah, blah. No, they would just be too much. So I've dumped the second half of 19. We're now not getting past verse 10. Anyway, that's that's where we're going. Uh, I've called it today the incomplete gospel of Jesus. Now, if you've been with us, you'll know that previously in the book of Acts of the Apostles, if I can put on my best American TV show sort of accent, previously, what have we seen in the book of Acts? Well, I'm going to summarise Acts into one sentence for you. Here it is. What is Acts of the Apostles about? It's about the announcement about the risen Jesus who has been made Lord and Christ and the announcement of the coming kingdom of God. It's the announcement about the risen Jesus, who is Lord and Christ, and the coming kingdom of God. That's what the book of Acts is about. And what the Acts of the Apostles does is it records the first few decades of the progress of that announcement into the ancient world at the time, the first century world. And so we've seen it go from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and then around the Mediterranean, which was sort of a lot of the known world at that time. We currently are in the back end of Acts, and what you get here in the back end of Acts is you meet the Apostle Paul, God's chosen delegate to the non-Jewish world, that is, the apostle to the Gentiles, and we see his church-planting ministry. In particular, we've mentioned before, he goes on three large church-planting road trips, Now, if you've got a map in the back of your Bible, those are really, really helpful for when you're reading the book of Acts because it covers a lot of places that we're not familiar with. Who here has ever been to the ruins of Ephesus? Two people. That's great. That's more than we've had all week. Um, Who here actually knows what country Ephesus is in? A few more. That's right. It's in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. But you don't know probably much about Ephesus. Now, the map will tell you something about where it is. It doesn't tell you much else. Another problem with the maps is it, it, it uh, divides this back end of Acts really as though the big sort of organising structure are the different church planning trips that Paul went on. He went on his first journey, then his second journey, his third journey. The problem is actually Luke doesn't organise his material particularly that way. I mean, the difference between Paul's second journey and his third journey is like a full stop. He finishes his second journey in Acts... 18, verse 22, and he starts the next one in verse 23. There's no, that's not the big deal. The way Luke organises his material is geographically here. What concerns him is Paul's ministry in Ephesus. He flies through Ephesus, and he may have stayed there only a week, we don't really know. He literally flies through, well, flies, he didn't have planes, okay. He, It's a flying visit through Ephesus at the end of his second trip. And it's in his third trip that he stays there for a considerable length of time. And so that's the the concern that unites these chapters. What can I tell you about Ephesus? Well, if I say to you, New York, certain ideas come to mind. If I say to you, London, certain other ideas come to mind. Maybe probably not as cool as New York. If I say Paris, you go, okay, that's cooler than all of them and probably too cool for me. Okay, that's, you have baggage, helpful information that you associate with those places. If in the First century, I said to you, Ephesus, that's the sort of stuff you're thinking. They say that it was probably the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So we're talking London, New York, Paris. We're talking right up there. It was a centre for politics, it was a centre for trade, it was a centre for religion. Centre for politics because uh, the Romans, or one of the Roman. Pro-councils, he was resident there, so it sort of was a centre for the Roman sort of rule over Asia Minor. Centre for trade because it was on a seaport and various land routes. What does that mean if you're a sort of a, a key centre for trade? Lots of people passing through all the time. The ideas that get spoken about, taught about, discussed in Ephesus get disseminated through the whole region of Asia Minor. So it was a centre for trade, that's significant. It was also a religious centre. One of the seven ancient wonders of the world was there in Ephesus. Anyone know what it was? Don't say the opera house. (laughs) Okay, yeah. The oracle, Oracle, that is, well, it was the temple of um, Artemis. Artemis is a goddess, Greek goddess, and the temple of Artemis was supposedly the largest building in existence. So I don't know what the largest building currently in existence is, but... That's impressive, whatever it is. And well, that's what was there. And it was associated with the worship of the goddess Artemis. So it was the centre, politically, trade, religion. That explains why Paul spent so long there. If you've got your Bible there, really helpful to have it open today. Acts 19, verses 8 to 10. Luke helpfully summarises Paul's time in Ephesus. So this sort of gives you a bit of the flavour of it. Acts 19, 8-10. Paul entered the synagogue, we're told. Now, if you're a reader of Acts, you know nothing unusual there. That was Paul's standard custom. Gospel was for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. Paul goes first to the synagogue. He spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, which is how Christianity was known at the time. It was known as the way. So Paul left them in the synagogue. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, who I think has a very cool name. But that's just because I like dinosaurs as a kid. <laughs> this went on for two years. Now, if you've been following this along the book of Acts, you go, that's pretty like that's a long time for Paul. He was it was a church planning road trip. He kept moving from place to place. Thessalonica, he spent three three Sabbaths there. That was it. Some total of his ministry in Thessalonica on his uh, first visit. So he spent two years there. Why? I presume it was strategy. I presume it was because Ephesus was, you know, he's he's reached the New York, the Paris, the London of his day, and this is a great opportunity to get the, get the message out about Jesus. And certainly that seems to be what happened. Look at the effect, verse 10. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the whole province of Asia, heard the word of the Lord. Okay? It didn't just reach Ephesus. It actually, through Ephesus, actually reached the whole province of Asia. Okay, that's a bit of an introduction of where, where the action today is taking place. So, the incomplete gospel of Jesus. Why have I called it that? Well, there are two episodes I want to look at today that happen in Ephesus. First one is at the end of chapter eighteen, second one is at the end, of, uh, beginning of chapter 19. The first one concerns a guy called Apollos. So Paul actually doesn't feature here. It's from uh, chapter 18, verses 24 to 26. My point really today is this. You can teach and speak true things about Jesus and still miss the point. You can teach and speak true things about Jesus and still miss the point. Let me show you what I mean. Let's read... Acts chapter 18, verse 24 to 26. Meanwhile, we're told, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. That is, he knew the Old Testament really, really well. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. Who's the Lord in the book of Acts? Acts. Who's been declared to be Lord and Christ by his resurrection of the dead? Go back to Acts chapter 2, right? We know that the Lord in the book of Acts is clearly the Lord Jesus. So this guy, knows his Old Testament really well. He's been instructed in the way of the Lord. That is, instructed in the things of Jesus, as is made clear as we go on. And he spoke with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him... Now, Priscilla and Aquila are two people, Christians who um, have become believers earlier in Paul's church planning road trip. Uh, they sort of hooked up with him uh, on his second road trip and when he landed at Ephesus for his flying visit, they stayed while he moved on. So they moved as Christians, became part of the community there in Ephesus and uh, they hear Apollos speak and what do they do? When Priscilla and Aquila heard him... They invited him to his home. Oh, that's nice of them. And explained to him the way of God more adequately. That is, it wasn't just, oh, we'll show you some hospitality come over. Hi, have this nice lunch. And now, by the way, let us just tell you a few more things about the way of God so that you actually might be able to teach more adequately. There was something missing in this guy's proclamation about Jesus. Now, just notice what we've been told. He knows his Old Testament really well. That was verse 24. He's been instructed in the way of the Lord, that is, the way of Jesus. He teaches accurately about Jesus, verse 25. What does that mean, teach accurately the things of Jesus? I presume that means he know, teaches about Jesus' life. He can relay Jesus' teaching. He knows about Jesus' death and resurrection. He's teaching accurately the things of Jesus. Now, if you're going to teach accurately about Jesus' death and resurrection, that must mean you know who Jesus is, Right? that points to him as the Jewish Messiah because that's what the resurrection proved. And certainly a bit later on, down there in verse 28, Apollos is there teaching from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah when he moves on. So it seems to me that Apollos knew all this stuff about Jesus. He knew he was the Messiah, proclaimed his death and resurrection. He was doing all this stuff, yet he had to be taken aside and explained the way of God more accurately. What was he missing, for goodness sake? Well, the only clue you're given here, so you've got to use your minds today, the only clue you're given is that he knew only the baptism of John. Okay, well, what's the baptism of John? Well, this is where you're thankful that Luke wrote two books, not one. That is, he wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts of the Apostles, two parts of really the one work, unfortunately separated in our New Testaments by the book of John. Now, if you go back to Luke's first volume, it tells you about... The baptism of John. You can jot this down, jot the reference down. Luke chapter 3, verse 3. What do you learn? We know that John the Baptist came proclaiming, I'm quoting here, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So, what was John's baptism about that Apollos knew about? It's about be baptized in water as a mark of your repentance, your turning back to God for the forgiveness of your sins. So, he's proclaiming this too. He's proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's proclaiming Jesus the Messiah. He's announcing repentance, forgiveness of sins. It's all sounding pretty good, isn't it? Like, what's he missing? Well, if he knows only the baptism of John, what he doesn't know is the the further baptism that John himself pointed to, which is the baptism of Jesus. What was the baptism of Jesus that John himself pointed to? It was baptism in the Holy Spirit baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's what Apollos, it seems to me, doesn't know about. Uh, A few references for you to jot down. Go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 5. The risen Jesus himself says to the disciples, John baptised with water, but you will be baptised in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Or again, go to the first Christian sermon, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter's there preaching. What does he say? This is really interesting. He says, Repent now, okay, who, who what baptism was associated initially with repentance? Well, John's was, wasn't it? John's was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Peter says, what you should do is repent, that's from the baptism of John, and be baptised in the name of Jesus, so that's the new baptism, for the forgiveness of your sins, well, that's baptism of John stuff, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, what happens here is it's not that or Jesus' baptism is the fulfillment, the completion, the perfection, if you like, of John's baptism. John's baptism was repent, turn back to God, you'll receive the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus' baptism is, and now believe in this one as the Messiah, be baptized into his name which your faith in him, and you will receive not just repentance and forgiveness of sins, but the promise of the Holy Spirit as well. That's the difference between the two. And that's what somehow Apollos had missed. He'd missed the gift of the Spirit. He was saying all these true things about Jesus, but it was incomplete. He had to be pulled aside and have the way of God explained more adequately to him because he was missing, it seems to me, missing the Holy Spirit. Is that really such a big deal? To miss the Holy Spirit? Well, I could now go into uh, six talks from annual conference, and I'll just speak for about fifty million hours, and we'll try and talk about why that's important. Let's not do that. Let me summarise it in one sentence, and which you say, "Gee, that could have saved me some time." Um, why is the gift of the Holy Spirit so significant? Because the Holy Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God, God Himself. His powerful, life-giving, holy-fying, that is, sanctifying, transforming indwelling personal presence in your life what does the gospel of Jesus offer the globe (coughs) forgiveness of sins absolutely yes we must never cease proclaiming the forgiveness of sins by the grace of God and the work of Christ but it also proclaims God in you the transforming sanctifying work of God presence of God in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. That is what the gospel of Jesus holds out. That is what is possible because of the death and resurrection of Christ, the Messiah. That he now pours out from the Father what he has received, namely the Holy Spirit. This is what the gospel of Jesus offers you, isn't it? Right relationship with God, yes. Reconciliation, yes. The indwelling, powerful presence of God in your life. That's what the gospel of Jesus offers Further, I think there's an even greater significance here. You say greater than that? Yeah, I think so, because what's the significance that we've seen through the book of Acts? What's the significance of the Holy Spirit coming? Time and time again we've seen the significance of the Holy Spirit coming is that was the great promise of God associated with the new covenant. What it means is the whole era in which we live has changed. We are not under the old covenant. We are now in the new covenant. The great promise of the new covenant, go back to Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, was that the Spirit would come. And that is what Christ Jesus, risen, exalted, pours out. The fulfilment of that promise. So when Apollos is teaching the true things about Jesus, I assume one of the things he missed in the gift of the Spirit was actually understanding, therefore, that it's the new covenant time. All the old covenant promises are now fulfilled in Christ. And now we live in the great joy of that. Okay. Well, that's what I think Apollos missed in his incomplete proclamation. I think that um, you can be pretty certain that 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 I've sort of read that rightly. I mean, it's a bit of an elliptic sort of episode because it doesn't exactly say everything. You've got to sort of turn your mind to it, try to think hard what exactly Apollos missed here. I think you get confirmation of the interpretation I've just presented to you by looking at the very next episode. See, the, the, the monk, I can't remember his name, who went through and put the chapter divisions, the verse divisions into your New Testament, whenever that happened, um, did a great job, but he, I think, really didn't serve us very well. That is, by putting chapter 19 where he has, he's really split apart two episodes that I think Luke deliberately binds together. They united together in a key, key idea. So, let's have a look. Let's move on to incomplete experience. This is a mighty strange episode. So, I'm trying to do something a bit silly here, maybe, some would say. That is, I'm trying to explain something that's a little bit unclear by appealing to something that is very, very unclear. But I'm saying, no, but when you bring them together, there is a beautiful clarity that comes. Okay, you're not persuaded, but let's, just, let's, let's, let's see how we go. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 7, incomplete experience. While Apollos was at Corinth, because that's where Apollos went on to next, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance he told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Now, this is um, a much debated passage. Different people have very different... Different Christians have very different interpretations of this. Some say, look, here is the clearest passage, maybe in the New Testament, that says that there is a second baptism in the Spirit for those who are Christians. Because these 12 dudes, they're described as believers, they're described as disciples, and yet they don't have the Spirit. And then Paul lays hands on them and the Spirit comes on them. So there's obviously clearly a second sort of baptism of the Spirit available for all Christians. I'm going to suggest to you, I think that's a, a, a misreading of this particular passage, and I'll try to explain why. What's the key thing that happens here? Well, clearly these 12 did not have the Holy Spirit, right? Because that's what Paul says. Did you receive the Spirit? No, we didn't even know it was one. And so they're baptised in Jesus' name and they received the Spirit. So that's the issue. They didn't have the Spirit. But also, it's interesting, it seems that they didn't know about Jesus. Because what Paul explains to them, he says, look, yeah, you were baptised with John's baptism, but John, was, John told people to believe in the one coming after him, and that's Jesus. And how do they respond to that? Well, on hearing that, they're baptised immediately into the name of Jesus. And baptism is the sign that you have, be- that you now believe, right? So I think that was their moment of conversion. That's when they became Christians, were actually believers in Jesus, was at that moment. And as we've seen, go right back to Acts chapter 2, as Peter pronounced in the first sermon, when you turn to Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. And that's what happens to these guys. And they receive it in that way that we've seen through the book of Acts, Sometimes God gives particular gifts of tongues and prophecy as a clear sign that, yes, these people too have now received the Spirit. I think that's why they get those particular gifts at this particular point in time. What's the difference, though, with Apollos? Well, the two stories are related because both only know the baptism of John, but Apollos doesn't receive the Spirit. Apollos doesn't sort of seem to become a Christian. I say, yeah, that's different, is it? Because Apollos already knew the things about Jesus. We're told is instructed in the way of the Lord, he taught accurately the things of Jesus, whereas these twelve don't seem to know Jesus at all. So I think the difference between the two is, for Apollos, there was something he didn't know about, and therefore something that he wasn't proclaiming, a truth that he'd sort of missed. Whereas for these second twelve, there was actually a key experience that they'd missed. They hadn't yet come to faith in Christ and received the Spirit. I think Luke even tells us that ironically, that is... In the story about Apollos that's recorded there, literally we're told that zealously in the Spirit, he's teaching about Jesus. Now, if you were there at annual conference, you know one of the tricky things in the New Testament is whenever you use the word Spirit, it's ambiguous. Is it just talking about my own internal spirit, what I'm like as a person, or is it the Holy Spirit, God himself? So it just says zealously in his spirit, or zealously in the spirit. Now, some people say, oh, that just means in himself he was just very zealous. I just think, actually, I'm not sure about that. It's connected to teaching, and then right away we're told he was boldly speaking. Now, boldness, proclaiming, all those things are associated in the book of Acts with the work of the spirit. I think Luke's saying, this guy, he doesn't know about the baptism of Jesus. He only knows the baptism of John. That is, he doesn't know about the Holy Spirit, but he's zealously in the spirit, preaching inaccurately all these things about Jesus. That this guy's got the spirit, but doesn't actually know about the spirit. So he has to be pulled aside by Priscilla and Aquila Go look. By the way, there's this thing, the Holy Spirit. Oh, really? Yeah. He's actually. You've already got him. He's already in you. He's already doing his work. But you just that's part of the proclamation. Where that's really different with these next twelve. That's where, that's how I think they're different to each other. Okay. So the key issue in these two episodes is the promise, the gift of the Spirit that comes with the Gospel of Jesus. That's what unites these two stories. I want to just fly a, a, a kite before we up, wrap up, though, and that's this. Um, chapter 19, 1 to 7, why has Luke included that here? Like, the book of Acts covers decades of Christian history. Decades. Like, that's a lot of stuff he could include. And goes on, chapter 19, records some wacky stuff, you know, handkerchiefs that Paul's touched that heal people. I would have, wouldn't mind hearing a few more of those stories. That would be pretty interesting. Why this story? I wonder, this is my flying kite, I wonder if this is because what Luke is doing here, this is a key inclusion moment. Throughout the book of Acts of the Apostles, there have been several key inclusion moments where you see different groupings of people who come to faith in Jesus, receive the Spirit, and become part of the new covenant people of God. And with Cornelius is a key one. There's one of the first Gentile who comes to faith, receives the Spirit included in the new people of God. I wonder here, what you see is repentant, faithful Israelites being included in the new covenant people of God. That is, who were these guys? They'd heard the proclamation from John the Baptist. They had received his baptism. As they were repentant, they turned back to the one true God, Yahweh, as Jews. They put aside sort of their misdeeds. They come back to him in real faith, which is why I think they can be called believers. And so here is repentant, faithful Israel being included into the new covenant people of God. Even more, where is this happening? It's happening in Ephesus. I just want to point out to you, here you get repentant, faithful Israelites who are effectively in exile in Ephesus Receiving the indwelling presence of God by the Spirit. Fast forward to the end of Paul's sort of current phase of ministry. It's when he finally gets to Jerusalem, the capital of the nation of Israel. What happens there when he proclaims Christ? Well, no, there, the Israelites in Jerusalem who are in the Promised Land actually reject the way of God, reject the message about Jesus, and have Paul arrested. Do you see the contrast? Faithful Israel in exile receiving the presence of God, the promise of the Spirit. Unrepentant, unfaithful Israel, even in Jerusalem, rejecting the ways of God for them. I think Luke is setting up a big contrast here that's preparing you for everything that's going to come when Paul gets to Jerusalem to help you understand it. And there's all sorts of Old Testament background that should start flooding into your minds at that point. Okay, well, it's the book of Ezekiel where the Israelites, faithful Israelites in exile, God says, I'm leaving the temple in Jerusalem and I'm going to be with the exiles. And I think you see that happening here. Anyway, that's flying my kite about what the significance of this within the, the whole narrative of, of the book of Acts. I haven't exactly found that written anywhere, so it could be completely rubbish. I don't think it is. I think it might be onto something. But, <laughs> but anyway, that's okay. All right. What about the here and now? All very interesting, hopefully, maybe a bit. Anyway, no. What about the here and now? Well, this is what it's about. These episodes are about the significance of the gift of the Holy Spirit. That it is a central blessing of the Gospel of Jesus, of what the Gospel of Jesus offers the world. It is right up there with forgiveness of sins in the accounts of the book of Acts. Right up there. I'm not saying stop proclaiming Jesus dead and raised. Come on, that's the, that's the foundation for everything that God gives us is the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. I'm not saying stop talking about the forgiveness of sins. That's that's critical. That's That goes to the heart of your relationship, your right standing with God. But right up there is the gift of the Spirit. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that this is part of our proclamation? I'd say it's because the promise of the gift of the Spirit is not just a truth to be understood. It's not just a truth to be taught. The promise of the gift of the God Spirit is an experience to be had. God wants His creatures to have this experience of He Himself in the person of His Spirit coming to dwell in you to unite you to His Son, Jesus, to transform you into His likeness, to work in you, to fill you with hope and joy and peace. That is what God wants to do. That is, that is part of the great gospel of Jesus. That is what it offers the world. And that's fantastic. We are not just preaching a whole message about Jesus. We are we are announcing a great offer of God that he might come to dwell in you, transform you. And you know what? I think this is a message that people want to hear. There are a whole heap of people in your labs, in your lectures, in your tutes, who know that they want to make a new start. They know the rubbish in their life. They wish they could be free, of but they can't see a way to change. Isn't that one part of the great blessings of the gift of the Spirit is that, yes, here is the power of God to transform you, to make all things new, to make you a new creation, and not just an initial start, but then power to actually help you to live in right relationship with God. This is power to transform, power to conform you to Christ. People need to hear that, don't they? I think there's also people, uh, lots of people who just crave an engagement with God. And tragically, they think the Christian faith offers them some sort of merely intellectual sort of understanding of God. Now, the Gospel of Jesus is God wants to be in a right relationship with you and he wants to dwell in you by his Spirit because of what his Son has achieved. Do you get better engagement with God than that? So I think our campus, our society wants to hear this. So let's not undersell the gospel of Jesus. Let's not over-promise either. The Holy Spirit doesn't suddenly mean that your life is just, you know, coated in cookies and cream. No, what the Holy Spirit does is transform you, conform you, enable you to persevere, give you hope. Joy even in the midst of struggles, peace in the midst of uncertainty. Let's not overpromise, but let's not undersell. Because our campus needs to know what God actually promises in the Gospel of Jesus. Okay, I have two minutes for questions. So one of us have raised their eyebrows. Oh, questions? Yes, I'm trying to reform my ways and make sure we have some space for questions. Two minutes for questions. Yep. Yes. I think they're disciples, probably of John, because they received John's baptism. I assume that's it's either that or maybe they're disciples, but they didn't use inverted commas, right? So maybe they're disciples or believers. No, I think they are believers. That is, it's air quote land, right? I think actually, though, no, they are believers in Yahweh. That is, they are people of faith. The, the word belief is just the word faith. So, they're people of faith. That is, that's because they're repentant. They've come back to God, faith in Yahweh. And I think the disciples is probably disciples of John. Any other questions? Yeah? Um, a lot of the stuff that you read about, you know, like evangelism, and, you know, if someone says to you they want to become Christians, you know, or well, you take them through the prayer, it's, you know, Jesus, I've been a man, and then from John, yeah. um, I believe in you. All of which is right and good, yep. All Yeah, I think part of the great promise of God, the gift of God, is the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes through to all who put their faith in the Lord Jesus, who repent. It's not in the literature terribly often. I mean, I haven't looked comprehensively around, but um, sometimes, tragically, I think, yes, we do undersell. We do undersell. Um, and I'm not trying to take away from the great truths that we do proclaim, because they're right and good, but I'm just saying, actually, there is more, you know. And I just wanted to give in our current society, our current culture, the message of the Spirit is, is part of God's great gift to help transform us, give us the new start, relate us to God through faith in His Son. Like I just think it's just got a lot of real cash value that maybe we're not, we're not proclaiming. i just just add an extra line into your prayer. And thank you for the great blessing of the Spirit. Last question. Thank you. If, if this message is so good, this full gospel, why is the Christian life so average and so often? That's a great question. If this, uh, I'll just repeat the question, if this is, you know, the riches of the complete gospel, so to speak, um, how come then the Christian life is so average so often? Yep. And I think there's because uh, you, when you look at the New Testament, what does What's one of the things that the Spirit works in you? Uh, The the verse I quoted but didn't give a reference for was the Romans 15 verse, which is where Paul prays for the Roman Christians, May the God of peace... Sorry, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you are bound in hope to the glory of God the Father. Now, I think... um, Hope's mentioned twice. And why is that? I think because hope is really, really key in living the Christian life. God isn't going to suddenly make everything fantastic now. God, God is not, this is not the new creation. The new creation is still to come. And so the thing that characterises Christians is that we have a hope, that we look forward to. And what that means in the midst of the very averageness and worse of this present experience, I know that there is a God who is working things for my eternal good, who is working things to transform me into the glory of his son who has the new creation held out for me, who has made me by grace an inheritor of the coming kingdom of God, who gives me the, the spirits so that I might persevere in the presence, might put my faith in him, even in the midst of suffering, who gives me joy in what, who he is and what he's promised, even though it's pretty average. That's how it works. That's the reality of the Christian life. And that's why Paul can sing when he's in prison. And that's how he can rejoice in his sufferings because he has a person of hope. And that's what we have for the world in Christ, hope. Let me listen to prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you might fill us with all joy and peace in believing in your Son, the Lord Jesus. We praise you for everything that you give us in him. And we pray that we might abound in hope to the glory of your name. And Father, we pray that you would help us to proclaim this great gospel of Jesus to your lost campus, to your glory and their salvation. Amen.